There is a new book about Charlie Watts, a Rolling Stone, and it's uh, completely authorized, the official biography. It's out right now called Charlie's Good Tonight, and it's written by author Paul Sexton. He joins us now. Paul, how are you? Good morning, Paul. Hey, guys. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Good. Are you live from London this morning? Kind of cool for us. Live from not very sunny London here, yes. Yeah. <laughs> how is is the country, before we get on to the book, is the country still in mourning over the Queen? Oh, uh, yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we finally seem to be m- m- moving on a bit. Um, although some people would say that the government aren't, but that's a whole different political <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Have you had a spot of tea today? <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm just kind of saving it until after our conversation, really. Okay, all right. If I was getting, if I was getting up from the laptop and getting get, putting the kettle on, you know? Because, so, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Watts, when you think of a, uh, a country gentleman or a, a London, somebody so proper, he he was not your typical rock star. He had the suit on. He, was he like that off off stage? Was he a gentleman like that? Or was that just his uh, shtick? No, he didn't have a shtick. You know, this is the most real bloke you could ever meet in rock and roll and just so amazingly down to earth and at the same time very cultured, as you say. You know, yeah. and, uh, never anything but su- superbly well dressed. You know, you would absolutely never see him in jeans and sneakers or anything like that. That's just, you know, beneath his contempt, as I, as I said in the book. And um, he, uh, he just had this unique style and it was not put on he didn't study it it's not out of a magazine star book or anything like that you know he he never copied fashion he was a massive fan of old you know uh, classically designed suits obviously and and clothes and spent a great deal of money on on looking his best always you know and um fascinating to sort of drop into that world for the book actually you know i spoke to his um his tailor uh and who's uh, the tailor's father was charlie's shoemaker so wow. i've uh, got to know <laughs> both of those and they're the guys in, you know, this sailor obviously is the guy in Savile Row, you know, so this is where Charlie would go, where he would be driven, because, of course, he was not driving himself, um, you know, to, and they, I went in and they showed me around and showed me some of Charlie's favorite designs. Very sad thing, actually, they showed me the last three or four jackets that he had had designed, which, of course, he never collected. They're still there. They're actually still in the, in the shop. Wow, so you, um, you, you talk to the tailor. And I heard a rumor, and you could correct me if I'm wrong here, because this is authorized, and this isn't a retread for anyone listening out there, and the book's out now. I, I heard he wrote, like, uh, uh, diaries or kept uh, notebooks or something of, of his, you know, what was going on when he was on tour or at home. Did you have access to everything? Well, he, no, actually, to, to slight question, he wasn't written diaries. I mean, his thing, the way that Charlie recorded Life on the Road, because you remember the important thing here is that his background was, was in graphic design. You know, he went to... to yeah, he did like comic days. strips, right? That's it. He yeah. did a book okay. as part of a, a, um, a, a, a college project, which was about his jazz hero, Charlie Parker. Um, and uh, that's the, at, while at college is where he met his future wife, Shirley, um, you know, who he's married to for 57 years. Um, and uh, he kind of... His graphic design skills recurred several times in his, in his you know, tenure in, in the Stones. I mean, there's a few specific things, like people might remember the back cover of the album Between the Buttons, which is a cartoon, you know, a series of cartoon drawings. That, that was Charlie. He did that. Um, he designed a, a Christmas card one time. There's all kinds of other little bits and pieces. But in terms of life on the road, the way that he recorded it was by sketching every hotel bed that he ever slept That's in. right. Okay, yeah. Okay. And oh, you, that's why. Well, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's right. That's, okay, that's where. What an artist. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And you had, know, yeah. you, you had everything. That's, 
it's kind of like a, it, it says a lot about his kind of obsessive compulsive nature because he started this in 1967. I don't know what he was doing for the three or four years before that, by the way, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> he started in 67. And of course, from that point on, being the character that he was, he just had to do it. He, he, he could not leave the, the, the hotel unless he completed the sketch of the, of the bed. And often other things as well, like the, you know, the, the chest of drawers or the dresser or whatever <laughs> it may be. And, um, you know, the, the, it is quite possible that those things will eventually go on display somewhere. You know, I had um, another contributor to the book was a guy called Don McCauley, who was Charlie's drum tech for the last 10 years or so. And he's become kind of the keeper of, of a lot of his uh, effects. And, uh, you know, Charlie collected drum kits, for goodness sake. You know, they're all in, they're all carefully housed wow. in, in warehouses, you know. And, I, you know, you have the conversation and he's half jokingly say this stuff should be in a museum. And he's, Don just quietly said, it will be. Wow, so, you know, wow. So, so, that, the Charlie Watts Museum, that'd be cool, wouldn't it? So Paul Saxton, author of the new Charlie Watts book, Charlie's Good Tonight. So go back then. Take us back to the very beginning. How did a gentleman like this, a mild-mannered guy, end up, I mean, I can only imagine, hell, the Stones today are still raising hell. Back in the early days, how did he end up drumming with the Stones? How did they settle on him? Well, they, they kind of headhunted him because they knew how good he was. You know, I mean, Charlie's background being in jazz. And jazz, was, yeah. Yeah, so he grew up quite poor. You know, they lived, his family lived in Wembley in North London in, in these houses that were called prefabs, which is the, the government uh, um, housed people whose, whose accommodation had been uh, damaged from the war. Bombed during the war. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they, they lived in these prefabs, which are very, you know, basic, sort of almost like flat pack kind of houses, really. Um, but he grew up there next door to a guy who became his lifelong friend, a guy called Dave Green, who was a great double bass player on the lot of Charlie's jazz records. And they developed this love of jazz. They start listening to the, the records, you know, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and everything else. They start going to gigs and so on. Then Charlie starts to play on the circuit, you know, and from really early days, as a teenager still, they're playing in, in pubs in North London in, in the late 50s. Um, and he meets Ginger Baker at that point, who's also another, you know, emerging drummer on the way up on sure. the scene around London. Um, and that's the point, of course, where you know the rhythm of blues is beginning to be a thing. It's got Alexis Corner, you know, very important man in the in so many artists' careers as a sort of star maker. Really, um, was was around, and Charlie played in his band. Stones got to hear about it. They had just formed. The role of drummer was, you know, passing between various people. Um, I think there's even one or two early Stones gigs where they didn't even have a drummer. So they they were kind of, you know, not sure where that was going to end up. And then they heard Charlie as Keith said to me, he describes it as the gig that he and Mick went to where they saw it was a packed room and they could hear this great drummer, but they couldn't really see him because it was the room was so crowded. And Keith said, we just, all I could see was this right arm of this guy keeping this amazing beat. And he said, I needed to find out what was connected to the arm. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Paul. And he, oh, go ahead. Yeah. What? I was going to say, no, he, and he said, if, if we can get him, then we can conquer the world. And we did. And, and we, we did. did. Yeah, yeah. So, Paul, in, well in, in this industry, in rock, and it's it's sex, drugs, and rock and roll, we know, for as far as we know, he didn't step out. He's a very faithful man. We know about the rock mm -hmm. and roll, but we also know he had issues with drinking and drugs, and, it, and he, he openly talked about it. What was his drug of choice, and how bad did it actually get? Well, it got pretty bad, but for a very short period of time. You know, this is, a, uh, you know, it, everybody drank. You know, there's, yeah. there's, that's no secret. That's, hey, uh, we uh, might be drinking now. Who knows? Oh, yeah, yeah. the power of radio, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, there was all of that in the earlier days, you know, and certainly that famous exile on Main Street period. I mean, Keith said to me that a lovely phrase, as he always has a great turn of phrase, Keith said, Charlie put quite a dent in the cognac industry. (laughs) (laughs) But nothing heavier than that, really, until you get to the period in the mid-80s where the band is beginning to go a bit wrong. You know, Mick and Keith are fighting all the time. Um, You know, they make that Dirty Work album, which is mostly his least favourite Stones album, I think. Um, Charlie's father had died. There's a whole load of different factors. But yeah, he went on the, you know, he was on heroin. It It was the full works for a while. And then he just pulled back, you know, without any, any kind of help from anybody. He saw what he was doing to himself. Um, there was a particular thing that happened. He told me about this the first time I ever met him, you know, very, almost like a confession, really. Not, not that it was not known, but um, he was clearly kind of still stricken with guilt about this period in his life, which was not that long before at that stage. Um, he just saw the signs. You know, he had a fall. He actually fell down the, in, in his wine cellar or something, and he damaged his hand, and he suddenly thought, I could have actually, it could have been my livelihood could have gone there, you know, if, I, if it had been worse. So he pulled himself back from the brink, and um, as his daughter Serafina said to me, you know, she was so proud of that because he just stopped, not quite cold turkey, but nearly, and um, saved himself and his marriage and everything else around him, you know. And from that point on, he was just like back to, you know, everyone's favorite, Charlie, uh, again, if you'll pardon the phrase. <laughs> yeah. Well, man, the book is we could go on forever, and we know you got to run. But, man, this is like, you know, about a quiet guy. You tell everything. Uh, Charlie's good tonight, and it's out right now. You can get it. Paul, thanks so much, man. We really Thank appreciate you, it. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, guys. Great to talk to you. Ta-ta.